0: Oh, oh, shine upon the darkness, oh, word of truth, shine bright. Abide with me forever, your law is my light The name of the first is Pishin. It is the one that went around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Now the gold of that land is good. The delium and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that went around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It is the one that went east of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. That was Genesis 2, 11-14, and this is money where we seek to help the good man Leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theana Money. I open up with that passage because it tells us a bit about the geography of the pre flood world. The fancy term for which is antediluvian. Ante with an e, not anti with an i. Like anterior for something in front. And diluvian like deluge. Antediluvian before the flood. And honestly, those are such stereotypical verses for rivers and gold. I felt like uh opening with them, even if they might be a bit overdone on the topic. Now, these verses do not tell us much about the geography of the earth at that time other than here are some rivers and these are their names and this place is called Havilah and there was A lot of gold there. They were abundant in the valuable natural resource of gold. I don't plan to spend much time, if any, on natural resources like gold. But I think they are still part of the geography of a land, just geography that has to be dug up, not seen from the surface. And an abundance of something like gold or other valuable natural resources, or the lack thereof, definitely will play a part in the economics of the nation that is sovereign over that land. Now we do not know where this place described here actually was, and since this was before the flood, and that ended over 4,000 years ago, wherever this land was is probably buried under hundreds of feet of sediment now. If someone, however, could figure it out and dug down deep enough, he might find a lot of gold from ancient Havila and make himself a very rich man. Since I am on the topic, I just want to rabbit trail for one moment about the Tigris and Euphrates mentioned here. A common mistake made by many Christians, on accident and not with malice. Those two rivers mentioned there in Genesis 2 are not our rivers by the same names today. Our Tigris and Euphrates have sediment below them with fossils in them. There were no fossils in Genesis too because death did not exist yet. Our rivers by those names today were carved by the flood and merely bear the same names as those previous rivers. Noah and his family named rivers carved by the flood after the rivers they knew, which had been destroyed by the flood. Similarly to how the settlers from Europe into the New World named cities and places here after cities back in their homeland. New York and the entire region called New England barely scratches the surface. So in short, the Euphrates today is the same one mentioned in later Old Testament books, but not the same one mentioned in Genesis 2, but rather is named after that river. Thus, the Euphrates today does not give us an indication of where the Garden of Eden was. All that aside, today we are going to discuss geography and how that plays into economics. I hope this does not seem boring to you, because it is really valuable information that will help you understand a large factor in why some parts of the world saw economic growth faster than others. Now, as Christians, we believe that the faith and our Christian worldview is the largest factor in why some nations took off economically and others did not. But complex things like macroeconomics include myriads of factors. And the faith of the people is merely one of them, no matter how large that factor is. Now, before we keep going, I just want to take a moment to ask you all to subscribe to Theana Money on your favorite podcast catcher if you've not already done so, and uh, share the episode with your friends. Uh, Just like a month or so ago, I released an episode On a presuppositional approach to transgenderism, and since this is a Sodomy Pride Month, be a great time to share that episode with your friends. Also, with this week's episode, I just want to say I uh, will be making this practical for you at the end of the episode and make it not just some nice information to know. So listen through the end, or I guess you can skip to the end if you want to, since this is a podcast and. I cannot keep you from doing that as you listen, but it would be cool if you listened to the whole episode. Geography is a major factor in economics. Every nation cannot be perfectly equal because, even if they were equal in every other way, their different geographies would make some better fit for some things and others better fit for other things. Geography can be a hindrance or a help to the economics and development of a nation. Thomas Sowell first keyed me into this idea of the importance of geography and the economics and development di- uh, of the differences in those things between Europe and Africa. I cannot remember first how I heard about this from him, if it wasn't a book I read or a lecture I listened to online, because it has been a while. If it was a book, it was probably Wealth, Poverty, and Politics, because I read that about a handful of years ago. And that was the first Thomas Sowell book I read. That was back when the whole woke movement was really starting to gain steam. And I was the foremost person among all my friends fighting it. Not because I wanted to, but because I was the first one to start diving into it. And so I stepped up to the challenge because someone had to. And I was happily surprised by how much Soul addressed issues related to ethnicity because I'd only known him before, as highly recommended for what he has to say about economics. So we are going to look at some examples of geography influencing the economics and development of nations. Primarily contrasting the continent of Africa with Europe and North America. I found an article by Thomas Sowell that mentioned some of the information I first heard of from him several years ago, so... Some of this is coming from that article. I will link it in the description of the episode if you want to check it out. Also, just because someone is going to try to claim that what I'm about to say is racist by the mere fact that it says some stuff about Africa that is not as good as stuff in North America or Europe. One, this is geography. The ethnicity of the people living there did not determine the geography. Pretty confident about that one. Two, Thomas Sowell gave me a lot of this information, and he's black. And three, I love Zambia, a nation in Africa, and was considering moving there temporarily, which could have become permanently if things went well, in 2019 to work at Conrad Mbewe and Bodhi Bakum's African Christian University. But I got a job offer at a ministry stateside before ACU made an offer to me, so I took that. If you've never heard of Mbewe before, look him up on Sermon Audio. He is called the African Spurgeon for a reason. Although, uh, one time, I think it was Josh Bice, said that Spurgeon should be called the African Mbewe, not Mbewe the African Spurgeon, because Mbewe is so good. Future Jeremy here. The English Mbewe was the joke made about what Spurgeon should be called because Spurgeon is English, not African. Use the word African too many times there, and I guess I just accidentally used it one extra time. Back to the episode. When you think about major cities, particularly major cities that are at least a century or more old, you tend to think of them as on or close to a river or a lake or some other body of water you might not even consciously think about that but now that i just said that you might think about it for a moment and realize how true it is it's just one of those things that like you knew but you didn't really think about so you didn't really know that you know it and that's just here in the united states think about nations with a much older history with cities that have been around for centuries or even thousands of years that city was either built on or near a body of water Or at the very least, it had some wells or springs or nothing else, a bunch of cisterns in order for the people and animals to not die of thirst and for them to water their crops. But not all rivers and streams are created alike. Some are good for boats and even large ships to navigate them, which opens up the people who live on that waterway to trade with those up or downstream from them. And even trade with those in other nations, perhaps even nations on other continents, if that waterway connects to the ocean. A waterway that is not navigable, or at least is more difficult to navigate by small boat or large ship, will make economic progress more difficult. Trading and interacting with other cultures really helps a people group to develop as they exchange their inventions with one another and both develop more quickly as a result. In the article I mentioned, Sol writes that navigable waterways are more scarce in Africa than in any other continent. An aircraft carrier can dock on the Hudson River in midtown Manhattan, but there is not a single river where that is possible on the vast continent of Africa, which is larger than Europe or North America. Even smaller boats can travel only a limited distance on most African rivers because of cascades and waterfalls. So you need navigable waterways, streams, and well I guess not streams, rivers, that are deep enough for ships and uh, are deep enough the whole way through and they're not shallow in some points and deep in other points. And that they don't have uh, waterfalls and stuff like that, that makes the uh, travel Impossible at some point along the way. And also on uh, that subject, with this, the rainy seasons and dry seasons in parts of Africa make for waterways that are navigable some parts of the year, but not year round. Meaning that some parts of Africa have uh, small windows when trade is possible, but bad timing can leave ships stranded until the rainy season comes back when they are forced to dock somewhere where the water is deep enough for them to be year-round, but there's a section between them and the ocean that is shallow during the dry season, and that ship could not pass during that time of year. Before the recent invention of the automobile, I know it seems like it's been a while, but in light of all of history, all less than 10,000 years of it since Genesis 1, The automobile was basically invented yesterday, like when you're looking at it in light of the hole. Before that recent invention, boats and ships were the best form of travel in order to cover great distances with speed and relative ease. Riding an animal or in a cart pulled by an animal was probably second, and it was much more cumbersome and slower than a ship would be and is virtually impossible in dense forests. This alone limited Africa and its development and economic potential. And this has nothing to do with slavery or colonialism or anything like that. It is merely the geography that God gave that continent. Europe and North America, on the other hand, have waterways that are much more navigable, sometimes because we made them so by digging them deeper or adding canals, canals and locks and stuff like that. But even without the human intervention there, the natural waterways of North America and Europe helped put the nations on those continents on better footing as far as travel and trade goes than much of Africa. Even before the canals and the locks Think about all of the trade that can be done in the northern part of the Midwest United States because of the Great Lakes. Or think about the Mississippi River, which allows trade through all kinds of different parts, all throughout the Midwest and the southern United States, and then out to the Gulf of Mexico and from there the ocean to allow even more trade. Another thing I remember Sol mentioning. And what I learned from him years ago, something that the article I just quoted from did not get into, has to do with the coasts of Africa. Natural harbors are important for international and intercontinental trade. The New World Encyclopedia defines natural harbor as a landform where a part of a body of water is protected and deep enough to furnish anchorage. Natural harbors have long been of great strategic and economic importance. Many of the great cities of the world are located on a natural harbor. Natural harbors allow safe places for ships to come to land, drop anchor, and transport goods from ship to land and land to ship. Enough of the shoreline of Africa did not make for natural harbors that it has negatively impacted the international trade of the continent as a whole. So... You know, if we talk about the waterways with Africa, compare that to North America. I already mentioned the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River. We also have the Gulf of Mexico, which I mentioned in passing with the Mississippi River. That gives uh, a lot of uh, water there, a lot of shorelines there for Mexico and the U.S. That is somewhat shielded from uh, the ocean because it's not directly on the ocean. There's a lot of land there. Separating the Gulf of Mexico from the ocean, but yet it's still connected to the ocean, and so it can be a great place for trade. Uh, I tried to look up uh, online if the Gulf of Mexico is a great place for a natural harbor. I would kind of think it is, but you know, part of natural harbor has to do with like the depth of the water leading up to shore, and if there's like big rocks or anything like that that could damage ships. So I don't know, I'm assuming a decent bit of the Gulf of Mexico would make for a good natural harbor. Now that's a lot about waterways, a major part of geography, but what about deserts? Deserts are, naturally, pieces of land that are not much good for farming. The more desert land a nation has, the more negative economic impact it has. The continent of Africa has the massive Sahara Desert. The Sahara was not always as big as it is today. I heard about this in the past, probably also from Thomas Sowell in that same place I already mentioned that I cannot exactly remember, but in trying to do research on this, I was having trouble finding more support. I think what I'm about to say is still accurate, though to what degree, it is a factor I am not sure. It might only be a small factor. So hear this, but take it with a grain of salt. Over farming of the Sahara Desert in the past led to the dismal state it is in today. Overfarming is one way that man can damage his land, his geography, and make it not as habitable for future generations. That is not a godly form of dominion and is something Christians should not be in favor of. This does not mean we need to be part of the green agenda that wants us all to live like the Amish, but with fewer livestock than they have. A lot of the green agenda stuff is garbage and fear porn and against science, rather than supported by science. But we should, under God, look for what is good for us and future generations, not in essence saying F you to our grandchildren and their grandchildren, as we make the world a much harder place for them to live in than it was for us. The United States has much farmable land that is fertile and is a great geographical resource. It is one of the factors that helped the nation become so prosperous. But over-farming has damaged us as well, just like in Africa. Remember back in school learning about the Dust Bowl from almost a century ago? One of the factors leading to the Dust Bowl was over-farming and leaving fields bare that otherwise would have had grasses or other trees or plants growing on them. With roots to retain soil and moisture. Not being wise with the land, such as letting ground lay fallow occasionally, as God directs in scripture, you know, such as not doing stuff like that. And opening up the soil and unused fields to be blown away by the wind by not having trees line fields or growing weeds when not using the land and then killing the weeds to become mulch in your soil. These types of things made it easy for a time of drought and high winds to go from bad to the nightmare seen in the dust bowl. All that to say, God gives some lands geography that lends itself more to productive economics and development than he does to others. But mankind can also damage the land God gives him and make it less productive than it would otherwise be. But like I said before, There are elements of economic growth and development that are not geographical in nature. Many of them, actually. One of which is Christianity. The Christian worldview to work hard, take advantage of natural advantages, and protect the earth as we have dominion over it, that will give Christian nations, or non-Christian nations that adopt principles like the Protestant work ethic, an edge over others on the world scene. So we looked at geographical factors that are outside of man's control waterways, coasts, etc, and some that are as a result of mankind. Stewarding land poorly damaged it and made it less productive. We also briefly looked at natural resources like gold back at the beginning of the show. That was a lot of good info there to help you better understand how geography plays a massive role in economics and the development of nations throughout world history, but let's make this practical for you. How can your local geography help or harm your business ideas and potential or current sources of income? If the geography harms everyone, can you find a way to get around that where others have failed to get a good niche for yourself? or maybe just to be more efficient than your competitors? Here's an example. It can be hard to make it as a farmer in the mountains. So before modern technology, living in the mountains often resulted in those people struggling to compare to others. But the farmer who builds some terraces on the side of the mountain has an immediate massive advantage over other farmers around him. And if he maintains those terraces and uses his income to build more, he will pass down to his children a distinct advantage over their competitors. Even when they copy his idea, he can be one step ahead in building more terraces. Or another question. Look at how your local geography helps your current income or idea for income. Is there something in the surrounding geography you can use to make yourself uh, more efficient? whether in monetary cost or in time? Or is there some edge that something in your local geography can give you? Maybe you make drinks and some local spring of water, for whatever reason, tastes better than other sources. So you buy the land it's on and use it to make your beverage taste better and thus increase sales. Those are questions I cannot answer for you, But you can look around yourself and see what resources you have at your disposal based upon your local geography. Things that you can take advantage of to make money for yourself and either start a new market in your area or take market share from those already established. Be creative. Is there something that no one in your area produces and so this item is constantly shipped in from other places? That adds cost. Especially if your geography makes shipping more expensive to where you live. Could you produce that good yourself for cheaper than the other person is able to produce and ship it to your area? If so, you can make money off of that. A lot of money if it's something that people buy frequently. So what can you do with your local geography to put yourself in a better economic standing? That was this week's episode of Theana Money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law, in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection, to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. More than silver or precious pure gold Oh, it revives me and satisfies me. Your law is sweet.